This week on The Futurists. We've gained some stuff and we've lost some stuff, right? The truth of the matter is I met my wife on the internet, right? I didn't meet her in a bar. I didn't meet her at a party. I didn't meet her in a club. I met, she lived literally across the country. And I, I met her in a virtual space, right? Playing a game. And you think about how common that is nowadays. You talk about people who have created relationships online who have never met each other in physical proximity that consider themselves very, very good friends. So in many ways, you know, you and I have never met in person, Rob. However, you and I have had a, what I consider to be an extraordinarily meaningful conversation that's been very, very um, beneficial to me. And I, I, you know, I think that that is really distilling the relationship down. It's not worrying about the physical presence. It's not worrying about our socioeconomic status. It's not worrying about whether I'm sitting in a, a small room or a large house. It's not worrying, like, it doesn't matter where I am. And so I think in many ways, it has equalized a great deal. Welcome back to The Futurist, a show dedicated to exploring the creators, thinkers, engineers, building the future and thinking about the future. This week, Rob Tosek and I are interviewing a good long-term friend of mine, Glenn White. Uh, Glenn has had a ton of experience um, in the marketing and advertising arenas. He worked, uh, we worked together at Motor Media, where he was the VP of operations for the Asian, um, Asian business, uh, but comes from a long-term commitment to building the technology that's going to power the world of the future and indeed has been on the edge of that technology uh, arena um, his entire career. Glenn White, welcome to the show. Thanks, Brett. Uh, good to see you. Rob. Yeah. Good to meet uh, you, Glenn. So most recently, um, you've been working, you know, uh, for for Epic and then previously for EA, uh, doing stuff on the Xbox platform as well. Um, doing a ton of stuff in gaming and most recently the metaverse. Um, and so I'm sure we're going to get into the, the metaverse, uh, you know, stuff today. Um, but you know, you've, you've been in the internet business since, you know, well, modems, modems history obviously is, is the first digital advertising ad agency. Um, and in 1996, you were working on the very first, um, uh, Los Angeles Olympic games, the very first digital presence for an Olympic games online. Atlanta, yeah. Yep. Atlanta, sorry. Um, and, um, you know, you 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 also obviously worked on many firsts in that space, as did Modem, rightly. So you've been on that sort of cutting edge of tech now for most of your career. Mm -hmm. Maybe we'll start with that. Is like, you know, what are you, in in those years that you've been working in in the field? Um, you know, what is it that you've you felt has been most material in terms of uh, technology developments that have changed society? Let's start with something simple. Sim yeah, simple. Um, the, the thing that I, I tend to keep in mind in situations like this is um, I, I read and have read a lot of um, Marshall McLuhan because he, I think he's, um, he's helped shape a lot of how I think about sort of media in general. Um, 
And one of the things that he sort of alludes to is the idea that when a new medium is formed, the first thing that people do is they try to replicate the old medium within it, right? And so exactly, yeah. um, you take a look at banner ads and you realize that banner ads are just billboards on the internet, right? Because it's what we understood. We understood print ads. We understood that. And so the first thing that we did was we tried to go ahead and throw up print ads on the internet. Right. And then once we could do video, we tried to do TVCs, right? Right, exactly. And so, um, but you kind of have to do that in order to be able to understand the language of the new medium, right? You you have to understand what the strengths and weaknesses are, and you have to understand how that evolves. And so, um, you know, the, the idea there is you realize that what you're actually trying to do is you're trying to replicate some of the old world in the new. And so, you think about going back to the banner ad thing. Um, you know, I helped traffic the first banners on the internet. I wrote the first banner standard for the IAB. Um, you, you realize that you're looking to create the equivalent of insertion orders. You're looking to create the equivalent of, you know, whatever the old medium was. And you realize that there are gaps there, huge gaps in some cases. Or there's like, well, wait a second. This new medium actually also has this stuff, right? So how do we how do we measure that? How do we account for that? And you start realizing that you, you're developing new KPIs, you're developing new methods of measurement, um, and you're applying to them what you actually think the goals are, right? You, you, you think about the idea that when you talk about print ads, print ads are based on circulation, right? So it's potential readership. It is not even actual readership to to a greater or lesser degree. You don't know how many people have seen this ad. It's how many people could see this ad and you hope that it's the right audience-ish. And so when you get to moving that entire paradigm online, you realize that you actually know who's looking at these ads to some degree, or you understand exactly how many times this has been served. And so one of our first sort of key sales points was we know exactly how many people saw this ad, right? Because we have a server log. We have an ad serve log that basically says, and back then it was just a, you know, a, a web server log that basically said this image was loaded X number of times. Therefore, this many people saw this ad or this ad was shown this many times, full stop. There's, there's, there's no guessing there. And so you start evolving in that direction. You start going, oh, well, that's pretty cool. I, I now have this. Um, but that's really, you know, when you, you say what's sort of the guiding, the guiding thing is first we start with replicating what we know in sort of this new new area, this new space. Um, and that requires the building of foundational tech and, and other things, which really sort of is where I spend most of my time. Think about that. Now, let's let's think, let's expand on that a little bit, because that was sort of a look back at where uh, Internet media and how Internet media started and where it came from. Um, but right now we're at an interesting point because. Uh, you've got streaming media, which is booming worldwide. Um, although maybe the slow growth may be slowing down a little bit, but there's sure a lot of companies piling in the streaming media. Every major media company is launching their own OTT video service or ad supported service. But at the same time, you've got live streaming, which is completely different. You know, it sounds like it's the same technology, but it's different technology and it's a completely different experience. Then you've got these services like TikTok, which don't really fit either category. And that's sort of uh, booming. So it looks like to me that right now the media landscape is fragmenting. And as a person who's focused on marketing, marketing tech and getting consumers to take an action, what do you think of that landscape, that fragmenting landscape of media options? It's a good question. Um, 
I have a couple of thoughts about it. The the first is, um, you know, we talk about the idea of convergence versus divergence, right? Some people will argue that technology tends to converge, and some people will argue that technology tends to diverge. Um, I actually believe both at the same time. Um, you you think about um, you know the, the positive example of convergence is obviously your mobile phone or your 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 handheld device, and the divergence part is that you know, scanner, fax machine, printer that no longer sits on anybody's desk, right? Where certain technologies do tend to converge and some tend to diverge. In media, um, it tends to reflect the content that is being consumed, right? So however many different mediums there are that are going to be consumed, there is going to be somebody who believes that putting an ad within that as part of the consumption of that media is a good thing. Um, I actually don't believe that. I think that that, I think disruptive media um, or disruptive advertising is kind of on its way out. And so all these companies are sort of getting in after the the horses fled the barn. I, I, I just, just to be clear, what you're meaning is like uh, we're watching a video program and then we interrupt it with a series of ads, like an ad pod. Yeah, um, that, that's what you're saying. Interstitials and superstitials, yeah. and yeah, yeah I, I don't. I, I think if you take a look at the performance of that media, it, it's plummeting, right, in terms of the quality of that media. Um, right. Yes, it is making people a ton of money. There's no question about that, but it's not making the brands money. Right. So you look at the value chain from brand to consumer, you got brand, you got, well, I mean, DSP, exchange, SSP, ad serve, like everything in the middle is making money. The consumer isn't making any money. They're the product and the brand isn't making any money. They're the ones that are feeding the entire ecosystem. So why do they um, do it? Well, it's the old IBM adage, no one ever got fired for hiring IBM. Nobody ever got hired by buying on Google. Like, I, I, I think, I think there, why do people keep doing it? Because it's, it's, I won't say it's the only game in town, but it's the easiest game in town. That is to say, um, you go to Google, you have a website, you have content and Google says, we'll monetize that for you. You go ahead and you put this code snippet on your content and we'll send you a check at the end of the month. You don't have to think about it. You don't have to do anything. They'll just take care of everything for you. Um, and that's easy, right? Yeah. Unfortunately, right? You're leaking data all over the place. You've got all sorts of challenges regarding who, who receives the, the vast majority of that money, right? I mean, you, you look at the IAB studies and they'll tell you that anywhere between, I mean, I, I, I've done this sort of independently, but the IAB will say anywhere between 70 cents and 99 cents goes to ad tech or is non-working media. And it's that one cent that's your actual working media that's, that's giving you any sort of result, right? Um, famous, famous statement, you know, I know 50% of my ad spend is, is working for me. The problem is I don't know which 50%. Yeah. And so, right. And so, um, you've got the same situation here where 1% of your, your spend is actually working media. The rest of it is going to these ad tech companies. And so if, if you think about it from sort of a, an ad tech point of view, that means that all of these companies are motivated to be inefficient. <laughs> because they extract more money that way. Okay. Let's, let's talk a little bit about the future. How do you see this evolving? Given the, the, the evolving landscape of media options, there's, there's more media than there are viewers, it seems. Yeah, particularly, particularly with tech, like, you know, the, 
AR, VR worlds, you know, augmented reality glasses coming at the end of the year. Hopefully, you know, VR already, you know, here, but obviously going to have an increasing role with the metaverse. Well, let's let's start with the idea of what what it will take to make the internet engaging, thus what it will take to make the metaverse engaging. And that's the creation of content, right? The internet really took off when GeoCities and MySpace and all these other things, people started shoveling content onto the internet that people wanted to engage with, right? Ultimately, it's content that's going to drive the adoption of whatever this is. If, if, and that's true of YouTube or Twitch or any of these other things. It's the content that drives the engagement. If that's okay. true, then you have to believe that you need to motivate people to create good content. And so people will create content out of passion, sure, but that's not enough. It has to be a viable means for to, to live. It's got to it's be something that somebody can, can, can make money from. So if you think of it like that, then the idea is that we need to go ahead and find a, a way to compensate content creators. And that's, that's what the ad industry really is for the internet, right? It's, it's a way to justify the creation of content. And, you know, you can make the argument that it's, it's symbiotic in some way, right? Because without all this content, the ad industry has no way to make money on the internet, right? Yep. And so if you think of it like that, then the answer is... What is really necessary here is brands engaging with content creators. It's not the umpteen ad tech companies in between the middle, the middle people that are taking percentages of spend every step of the way. The logical evolution is that brands deal directly with content creators at scale, right? And, yeah. and, and then you start getting into you know, evolving ad tech. My, my belief is that ad tech should be plumbing. Or, or wiring. Okay. That is well, to say, sure. right, instead of trying to provide this value add service where we'll go ahead and find you these, you know, they tell brands that they'll find you all these customers, and you'll make a ton of money and all this other stuff. Like, why? Get out of my way. Like, mm -hmm. uh, it, it, as far as I'm concerned, if, if I'm a brand, I know my customers. I know my customers pretty well for all intents and purposes. And when you get to online products, gaming is, you know, a big one of them, but, but also a ton of online services, as you all know. There's no shortage of information that these in, that these companies have. You get into CPG and FMCG and all this other stuff. You you end up with, um, you know, different challenges, and and we can talk about those. But net, I know my customer, and so if you believe in relationship marketing, and I do, it's kind of a religion for me. If you believe in that, then I need to be able to curate the dialogue that I have with my customer or player. I tend to use the word player because I've been gaming for so long. So if you, if you, if you know, if I know my player, I know when I need to engage with them. I know how to engage with them. I know what I want to say. If you have all these intermediaries in there that are deciding who sees what ad and when and all this other stuff, you're disintermediating the relationship between the brand and the player. Yeah. You do that, you're no longer curating that journey. Somebody in the middle is, and they're the yeah. ones making the decision, right? You're, they're violating that relationship. So the goal here is for brands and players to create that relationship again, that direct relationship. And to be in direct dialogue, right? So it's not just a blast and out a broadcast ad that somebody, but actually having a conversation. I mean, look at advertisers have been saying this for 20, 30 years. How close are we getting to that? Is that happening? Because what um, it sounds like you're saying, it sounds an awful lot like Procter Gamble. Uh, well, Procter Gamble but, was a soap yeah, company yeah. making their own soap operas. That but but it's also, 
but it's also um you know like influencer marketing has been the early example of this but it's obviously you know when you start talking about content creation in the metaverse then that's a very different skill set from you know influencer based marketing on tiktok i mean should mm-hmm. but but should it be like i i mean over time it won't be right, right. over time True. True. O- over time you know if, if, if we're talking future right ultimately there are going to be organizations and companies that are going to be building tools that make content creation on the metaverse just like on the internet right geocities existed people couldn't build a website and all of a sudden they could build websites and so something exists that will allow something happen in, in a in a deeper scenario you know we can talk about what the metaverse is and isn't but th- Conceptually, the idea is that ultimately you're creating additional tools in order to be able to create content in an easier, more accessible way. And, and that is, you know, I, I think the next step. Getting back to, to the ad part of that, um, ultimately, you, you, you raised an interesting thing, P&G creating soap operas. That's not too far from the truth. That ultimately is, is a sponsorship model. But what if it were more than just a sponsorship model? What if what if these brands were taking active roles in the creation of this content, right? Yeah. And this yeah. is where this is where we talk about getting off that digital couch, which I, I alluded to in sort of our, our prep. Um, the, the idea here is right now there's a whole bunch of people that consume content, right? And so when you, you, you talk about the 50s, 60s, 70s, a whole bunch of people watched a ton of television, right? 80s, 90s, they watched a ton of television. All of a sudden, you end up with TikTok, um and and all these other things um all they're doing now is they're making their own content right they're making their own television and so what we're really talking about here is the idea that these 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 passive consumers of content are becoming active creators of content brands have been doing that by paying other people and so on and so forth but the idea that in product placement and so forth yeah exactly when we talk about collaboration now all of a sudden you're allowing a uh, an individual, a player, or or a customer, or whomever, to engage with brands that they love in a meaningful and interactive way, as opposed to, like the amount of sentiment, positive sentiment that Apple brings, and negative sentiment, depending on what side of the ad tech industry you're on, the amount of positive sentiment that Apple brings, people love engaging with Apple. They they just think it's great. They go to Genius Bars, they hang out there, they 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 shop products constantly. Like they just love that stuff, and and God bless. But like. The idea here is that people will engage with Apple as a brand, regardless of where they are, because of the sentiment that 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 brand brings. And that's true of a number of brands, right? You think about all the lifestyle brands, Nike and so on. People love engaging with those brands. And so the idea that Nike should and could be creating these interactive experiences in order to get deeper relationships with their customers, their, their, you know, their, their people is something that's bound to happen and does happen, right? One of you know- go. Hang on, hang on, hang on. Sorry, I, I got to bust in here a little bit because, because I don't think we can just skate right over that point you're just making. You're saying that Nike, a company that manufactures shoes, actually, they don't even manufacture, they design shoes. They outsource the manufacturing. They're not going to make media. That's not what they do for a living. They design shoe products. Really? They hire agencies. They hire creative people. They, but, they farm but aren't, aren't digital yeah. aren't digital shoes media products? Like in, you know, if they design digital clothes, Artifact uh, is making that stuff. Yeah, I mean, let's 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 pause for a second here. There's a difference between the brand and the company, right? A brand is the assembly of everybody who goes ahead and pushes that brand, including all the affiliated agencies, all the people they're paying to go ahead and push their brand, and all this other stuff. It's a brand. 
right? It, we can talk about the business of a brand, mm-hmm. but ultimately Nike is a brand. When you're saying Nike doesn't make content, that's factually untrue. The Nike ads that are getting put out on an annual basis are some of the best storytelling ever. You think yeah, about the Michael Jordan. That's Weed and Kennedy that's stuff. doing that. That's their agency that produces that stuff. On behalf of whom? Weed and Kennedy isn't. Is it but, but hang on, Glenn. A minute ago, you were saying that the future doesn't involve uh, all these intermediaries. The future involves direct dialogue between a content, a brand owner, and and the person who's buying the product. Now you're saying that they actually rely on intermediaries, it's but they're a all community part of some or kind a of, universe uh, of community brand. of brand fulfillment or something. Yeah. Which one so, is true? Like, which of those stories is the one you want to stand with? It's an and situation. And the question is, it comes down to the control of the brand message, right? Because what, you, what I'm saying is, what you've done is you've disintermediated the brand and the, and the individual, right? WK is not producing Nike ads without Nike's consent. They are not putting stuff out there on the internet or in, in, in the ecosystem. Right, but they're, they're an intermediary. But you could see them You could see them just as a content creator, right? They, you know, they they're a paid content, content creator, I, you know, and, and like the different, like technically the ability, I'm, I'm going to jump in on, on Glenn's side here. Technically the ability for individuals to create content that is, is as compelling as an ad agency, that gap has been closing pretty quickly the last few years. Look at, you know, some of the stuff, some of the creators on YouTube in terms of, um, you know, like even in the gaming community, I, you know, I, I play this game called Rust and um, the, the guys that make these movies, these feature length movies of playing these games with all these super cuts and, and special effects and stuff. It, it's super impressive what you know what these small teams of three or four people can put together sure now. but but nobody's arguing that you know, individual people have the ability to make great compelling content that's clearly true and it's grown i agree with that i'm just trying to understand the point of, of whether brands should be in direct dialogue with their end consumer which i think makes sense i hear that i gave the example of procter and gamble which you know back in the day they were one of the largest producers of daytime tv even though they were a soap company they also had a TV production company as part of Procter Gamble. It wasn't a third party. They didn't hire yeah. somebody. They didn't vend it out. They didn't put it out to bid. They did the work, they did the work themselves. They hired TV producers. So they were a big producer of daytime TV. And so yes. that's what I thought we were talking about. Um, well, and it's an interesting notion, right? So you, we, in, we, by that context, are, you'd say like Nike are could become a metaverse that. company. I, but I see, the, I see the difference here, here, right? You know, well, uh, Rob, you, you came from the Viacom MTV, you know, the the tv production side whereas glenn's largely been on the online media side Mm -hmm. and and this is a bit about what he's talking about um you know in that you try to find analogies for the the old world in the new system um Mm -hmm. and but you know what you end up doing as as these uh, systems evolve is creating new analogies or or new ways of thinking about it but sure i get the marshall mcclellan reference but the the question i'm asking is really simple are you saying that like a few Future tech, a brand is going to be creating its own metaverse. That's really what I understand because there's a fair bit I think of technical going to be, required. I, well, let's take a let's breathe for a second here, and and we'll say yes, they are. How they do that is in partnership, right? The idea here now is about collaboration, right? What is the collaboration between these? You know, you talk about streamers and creators that are making this stuff and the brand stuff that you you alluded to earlier. They're doing so on behalf, or they they are sponsoring these these creators to do these things. 
but it's more than that, right? It's, it wants to be that collaboration. You, you talk about the trend of more and more brands bringing agency feature functionality in-house, right? Mm-hmm. Much more ad buying, much more um, ad strategy, much more analysis is all coming in-house. I do think they end up with with production on, because I also think that the the as we start moving to online products, whatever those whatever you decide to call those digital, you assets. have that ability. Yeah. You, you 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 do have that ability, right? The idea of collaborating in such a way, creating those assets to make them accessible, and we can talk about you know what what that ends up being. But longer term, you, you talk about Nike. Are they going to rely upon agencies? Yeah, but what is an agency then? you know, hiring expertise in areas that you might not want to do that isn't profitable for you is outside your expertise. It requires niche stuff. But over time, as that becomes more normalized, those become features that exist within inside these brands themselves. And so listen, I can, I can support your point. Uh, Yeah. The reason Nike bought artifact is that they realized that making NFTs and digital versions of their sneakers was going to become important to their customers. And so they decided we need this capability. And instead of relying on an outside company, they said, let's just buy the leading company in the category. So Artifact at the time was the leading creator of NFT shoes, you know, virtual shoes, if you will. Uh, as nuts as that might sound to some of the people who are listening, it turns out it's a thing that's quite popular. Um, people well, are paying I mean, thousands of dollars for EA, virtual sneakers. EA's been doing so that Nike for, bought the company. But EA's been doing that for 20 years, right? Adidas yeah. has been paying EA for decades at this point to put their products inside of FIFA. Like that's not new. Or, you know, um, well, that's you a know, little the, different the, the driving about, right? simulation not, games with, you know, car, uh, car platforms in there and so forth, right? Hey, listen, guys, we need to take a quick break. After the break, I'd, I'd really like to get into the metaverse because, you know, we've touched on it a few times, but we've got to dive right in because um, you both are, you know, Big, big in in that space, obviously. So, you're listening to the Futurist. We have uh, Glenn White, uh, strategic global marketing technologist, um, previously in, with Epic Games and EA and Motor Media and a bunch of other uh, creative firms, and myself and Rob Tursek. Uh, we'll be right back up to this break. Welcome to Breaking Banks, the number one global fintech radio show and podcast. I'm Brett King. And I'm Jason Henricks. Every week since 2013, we explore the personalities, startups, innovators, and industry players driving disruption in financial services. From incumbents to unicorns, and from cutting-edge technology to the people using it to help create a more innovative, inclusive, and healthy financial future. I'm J.P. Nichols, and this is Breaking Banks. Hey there, welcome back. You're listening to The Futurists with Brett King and myself, Rob Tursik. And this week, our guest is Glenn White. And Glenn and I were having a real interesting uh, discussion a moment ago about who owns the brand and who's going to manage the process of explaining that brand or conveying that brand in new media. This is a relevant topic for our listeners because the very near future is going to involve completely different kinds of media, stuff that most of us don't spend time in today, but very likely will be in the next five years. I'm talking specifically about the metaverse. We've heard this term so many times lately, ever since uh, Facebook's big announcement that they're changing the name of the company to Meta, and they're going to focus on being less of a social network company and more of a metaverse company. It seems like mass media has been fascinated by this notion of what a metaverse is. So Glenn, do me a favor, share with us your your view of what you think the metaverse actually is. Can you give us a, a proper definition? 
whenever somebody says metaverse, I hear internet. So you'll forgive me. I, I it's in my in my head, it's the evolution of what the internet is. Um, I I think I tend to think of metaverse as a, as a brand play more than a more than a practical product play. Like people talk about being a metaverse company. What does that even mean? Yeah, I, I don't like you can't tell what do me you what you think it means. Is. What do I think? Yeah, what do you think it means? Because it's such an undefined term. So when someone says, think of us as a metaverse company, what are they trying to get us to think of? Trying to separate your money from your wallet. Um, I, I think, <laughs> I, 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 I tend to, if you're talking about practical problems, like I tend to think of things in terms of practical problems, right? Like I, I tend to think of when somebody says metaverse, what I hear is I hear relationship, right? Like I want, there, there is a relationship between X and Y. And that goes down a very, 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 very deep rabbit hole, right? So we were just talking about the relationship between brands and, and players or brands and consumers or brands and you know aficionados or whatever that is. That relationship is how that relationship takes place and what that means is sort of the, the goal of what a metaverse wants to be. No different than the internet in many ways, right? You, you think about the well, internet. okay, I, I hear you, I hear you. But the, for the folks who are listening who are still a little bit puzzled because we haven't have actually given a satisfactory definition of the internet, uh, sorry, of the metaverse. Let me offer this. Uh, so the metaverse is proposed to be an immersive 3D space. Some people call it a virtual world or an immersive world, but the idea is it's all around you. So unlike the internet, which we look at on the screens, so it's you know, internet's typically contained inside of a rectangle. And even today, the internet consists mostly of rectangles, whether they're rectangles that have video or rectangles that have text pages. But the metaverse is meant to be immersive and real-time 3D, meaning you can move through it. It's above you, it's below you, around you. It's a space you can move through. And you might think of that as like a video game. Uh, you know, Today, 3 billion people are playing real-time 3D video games, so they're quite familiar with that. And, by the, and given that fact that so many people are already doing video games on the web, seems like a logical extension that those worlds, those game worlds could also include other things that aren't games. Entertainment, I, we're starting to see concerts in the metaverse, yeah. art shows. Some people are suggesting you can do education there. Some people say you're gonna be able to work in the metaverse. Now Glenn, when you hear all that, I hear you. Yes, of course, it's about a relationship, right? That's what you say when you hear metaverse, you hear relationship, I get that. But I think what we're talking about is a relationship between the metaverse platform and the end user. I and that brings of, us back to the concept of intermediation because that yeah, platform wants to get between the user and the brand that's that's sponsoring. why that 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 uh, I reject that definition for a couple of reasons. One, are you telling me that blind people are not going to be able to take part in the metaverse? Uh, because the way I've just framed it, sure. I mean, can they play video games? Yes, and do. Okay, so in the same affordances that are made make it possible for blind people to play video games, they'll probably exist for the metaverse, wouldn't they? Well, I mean, it it would depend. Right. And, and that's okay. kind of what, what I'm getting at is I don't you're talking about sort of the the computer human inter, interface that that creates that. And my point is that the that the relationships of the data underneath the mm -hmm. engagement with the data is really what matters. The form that it takes. Right. Is less important than the relationship with the data and the interaction with the data. So like. When when you talk about it being an immersive 3D world, like, okay, but my life is an immersive 3D world. What value, I have a spreadsheet that's in front of me. 
the value of 3D representations of data aside, it's a spreadsheet. It doesn't have to be 3D. And so there's a whole bunch of stuff there that sort of begs the question is, what's actually the relationship between the individual and and the the content that they're consuming? Let's stop using data. Let's start using content. So how you consume that content, if you're focused on the form of how people are consuming that content, you've sort of missed the point, right? And that's sort of like saying, people are focused on the radio and not focused on the songs. People are focused on the 3D representation of this stuff and not focused on the experience. So so and let's, let, I, I want to just dive in to a little bit of that, which is something I know you've worked on from a policy and a platform perspective, which is, um, you know, what the, the economics of the metaverse could be like, you know, I know we've talked about this extensively offline. So this, uh, this, this stuff is where I find your view extremely compelling and very interesting, but, um, to, to take the power away from the platforms like the metas and so forth, and to create, um, you know, these metaverse 3D internet-based environments that are inclusive and, you know, people can work and live in because, you know, potentially metaverse will play more of a role in society in terms of, um, you know, community building, um, collaboration, things like that, um, it, you know, as a distraction from inequality and, and those sort of things. But tell me about how you think um, in an ideal world we would develop the metaverse for, you know, in terms of economically, um, in terms of rights in respect to content and data for, for individuals and, and corporations and things like that? So you have to sort of ask and answer the first question is, do you believe in intellectual property rights? Like you, you, you start there. Do you believe that if an individual creates a thing, whatever that thing is, they have the right to monetize that? They have a right to give it away. They have a right to hoard it. Like, do, do you agree with that. And and I don't know that I have a, a straight, clear answer on that one. But let's assume that you do believe that that is a true statement. That is to say, I create a new thing. I have the right to that thing. Because it is a digital artifact, we now know beyond a shadow of a doubt who created that thing. We know who owns that thing. We can transfer that thing. We can do whatever we want. We can license that thing. That thing is pretty straightforward. And those systems exist. Like, Yes, there needs to be some evolution of those things, but ultimately that allows you to sell an asset, right? And that asset could then be used in somebody else's creation and you can deal with any number of forms of compensation regarding the usage of that asset, right? It, it, that's, when we talk about the, the, we talked about marketing, we talked about it being the, the exchange of value. All of a sudden, we've got some interesting ideas here because let's say I go ahead and I'm a musical artist, I create a song. That song, I can license that song so that somebody can use it to be a soundtrack in their experience. And I can get paid either flat out, I can get paid per play, I can get paid based on whatever I want because it's all trackable. Or I might pay somebody to put it in a really popular experience to get the exposure I want, right? The exchange of value is bi-directional. There's no situation where I'm just selling stuff or you sell, buy, sell, buy, sell, buy. There's the ability you created a value exchange that allows you to go ahead and transfer those things backwards and forth. So 
all of a sudden, the, the creation of assets and the collaboration of that stuff becomes interesting because the compensation that normally comes alongside the creation of content can be distributed based on how you contribute that. And you can negotiate that on a per asset basis if you want to. Or if you create a platform that allows for the creation of these experiences, you can take a percentage of that if you so chose. Um, that's you know, again, there's no shortage of compensation models that that then devolve towards the creation of content. And that gets sort of to our earlier Nike shoe example, right, where they're going to go ahead and create content. They're going to expect some sort of compensation for it. But to to the earlier point, they've been paying EA for years, as has Adidas and other companies have been paying these companies for years to put their products for product placement. Right. So it's it's bi-directional. They're going to create these assets. Maybe you license the asset from Nike in order to be able to put the shoes in your game. Maybe Nike pays you to put the shoes in the game. Maybe you just agree that it's good for both of you and you don't charge anybody either way. Like the exchange of value based on collaboration, creation of content is is probably what. What, what about what about monetary ex exchange in the metaverse? What about um, you know digital money and how that might evolve in the metaverse? Any any ideas on that? You know the use of wallets yeah. and so forth. Yeah, I currency is a thing. There needs to be currency in some form or fashion. I, we can talk about what that is. Um, this gets into sort of how I think about the internet slash metaverse um, topology sort of across, across the board, there are going to be areas that are controlled by brands or by individuals. These areas, um, are going to have gates between them and other areas. Um, moving stuff into and out of those areas is, and, and this gets back to the relationship conversation we had earlier, Rob, which is understanding the relationship between two brands so that that way there's agreed upon, portability of stuff between currency is one such thing, but it could just as easily be objects or data or anything else. Moving it from one such area to another area requires agreement, a relationship, an understanding of what, what constitutes that stuff. We talk about the metaverse. We talk about earlier, we talked about the idea of requiring compensation in order to be able to create a, a substantial amount of content. That only works if I can take that that compensation out of the digital ecosystem and put it into meat space because I can't eat bits. Like it, you ultimately there's food, shelter, water, all this other stuff. Don't want to get into the idea of ultimately all that stuff becomes free. And like, I, I, I want to believe that that's a thing in the future, but in the, in, in, in the intervening time, people need to eat. So being able to move that currency into and out of the ecosystem is probably necessary. Listen, I'm, I'm hearing the things you're saying, and I'm just trying to imagine what our audience is thinking as they listen to this. Uh, it sounds like we're talking, we have a fairly technical conversation about the creation and exchange of value in a virtual marketplace. And it really doesn't matter. And you're using these terms interchangeably as to what the content is, right? So you use the example of a song, you use the example of an advertiser or a brand. Um, and we're using that interchangeably. And I get that, but that's a very technical conversation and it's a little bloodless in a way. Because um, I'm curious about what are people actually doing in these virtual worlds, uh, these metaverse worlds. And the reason I bring that up is that this morning, um, there was some news about the metaverse, which is actually worth paying attention to. I think it's quite relevant here. I've criticized many of the early metaverse launches uh, several times on this show and, uh, and other forums. 
um, because they focused on business model first. And in other words, they focused on exactly the kinds of technical discussions you folks are having right now, which is, you know, how is value created? How's it exchanged? Who's going to control it? Who's going to own the customer? Who's going to own the impressions and count them and monetize them and so forth. And what they failed to do is focus on building a community. In other words, giving people a reason to be there in the first place and making it really fun and engaging and giving them fun things to do. Um, and I'm referring specifically to worlds like Decentraland and Sandbox. Uh, the idea there was if we build a platform and we figure out the marketplace and we figure out how values create an exchange, other people will figure out the fun stuff to do and they'll come build those experiences on top of our platform. I bring that up because just today in Cointelegraph, there's an article that says that the, the value of real estate in these virtual worlds, Sandbox and, and Decentraland, has plummeted on average 85% since the beginning of the year. Good time to so buy. last year, you know, it was a little bit of a land grab, kind of a gold rush mentality. People were rushing out to buy virtual land, you know, kind of build their homestead on the, on the digital frontier in the metaverse. Some folks were excited because they thought, oh boy, I can buy land that's near, uh, you know, some celebrity. Like Snoop Dogg had some virtual land. Great, I'll get virtual land next to his. It'll be worth something. Do you really want him as a neighbor? I wonder if he's growing know. virtual weed at his virtual Exactly, it was estate. all kind of hyped up. The problem is you come to these towns now and uh, there's there's nobody in them. There's nobody in these virtual worlds. There's you know, It'll say there's a thousand people on the server, but when you show up, you can't see anybody in sight. And so my sense is that a lot of effort's gone into analyzing the economics of these worlds, um, not as much analysis has gone into how do you populate them with people and give them something fun to do? What's your well, take on that? Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna bring out my Marshall McLuhan quote again. The first thing they're doing is they're trying to replicate the old paradigm in the new, and it doesn't fit. There's an infinite amount of real estate in the internet. There's an infinite amount of real estate yeah. in the metaverse, right? And that yeah, means that the sure. scarcity model of real estate is broken from the get-go. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right? So like if that's a that's a scam. Like if you're trying to create artificial scarcity in a digital realm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like like people if, are like if this anything, will be great. If this anything. Be great. No. But to your point, there's community is important, but that isn't predicated on what land you own. Yeah. That's the relationship we're talking about. And that gets back to what I'm talking about. What's important here is the relationship. What's important here is the, the, the network of relationships between people that are going to do things and collaborate together and all this other stuff. And creating systems and spaces that allow people to collaborate, create content, consume content collaboratively. That's what matters. And so when you talk about a 3D shared, consensual, what, like, really? Like, that's what you're focused on? You're focused on trying to replicate the old world in the new? Like, sure, you can do that. Go ahead and do that. Like, people need to do that in order to be able to find their feet, right? The shared sporting event or the shared concert, those are great experiences and they're fun and they're engaging and immersive and they bring all sorts of value and they're fantastic, right? But you think about some of the stuff that's happening with some of those events, which are carrying it far beyond what you can go you can see just by going to a concert or by going to a sporting event the idea of seeing the sporting event from every player's point of view is so different than actually just passively watching the sporting event on a on whatever camera the director decides now we're starting to evolve that into something that's far more interesting and so mm -hmm. what you're really talking about when you you talk about real estate or you talk about you know I, i'm gonna regret this it, somebody is gonna 
take me to test with it. You talk about NFTs or anything that's creating artificial scarcity in a digital landscape yeah. is destined to fail, has to fail. Because what it's doing is it's gatekeeping. It's being exclusive rather than inclusive, which hammers home your point, Rob, which is it is about the relationships between people. You want to be collaborative. You want to be more inclusive, not less inclusive. So gatekeeping, real estate, all the things that are exclusive by nature have to fail. Yeah, I think I I think ultimately this is like at the heart of the debate of where we go as a society. Uh, You know, it's not just metaverse. I mean, if you look at the problems that we're going to have to deal with, um, you know, over the next 30 years, sea level rise, food scarcity, displacement of eco refugees, um, you know, access to healthcare, all of those things, this question of inclusivity versus um, scarcity, you know, from an economics perspective is, I think, at the heart of human philosophy in terms of where the species goes, right? You know, it's bigger, bigger than the metaverse, you know, because ultimately, you know, we have, we are going to come to an inflection point or a decision point, a fork in the road, if you like, for the human species over the next 30 years, where we have to decide to double down on a system of scarcity based on capitalism that creates massive inequality and two different classes of people, very, very rich and extremely poor, subsisting on UBI, or we're going to have to rethink the way our economic works, economics work for society in terms of inclusivity. You know, there's no functional reason why the economy today, for example, can't provide access to housing, healthcare, education, and food for everyone. So the question is, why don't we do that today? Well, that's a this is a an economic or social philosophy that we've developed over the last few hundred years around capitalism, et cetera. Right, and I think um, I, I think an advanced human species, any advanced species will eventually come to the point where you don't prioritize economics over human well-being right you don't prioritize the health of the planet over you know making money but that's where we're at today and i think this is where we're in the last gasps of the system it could take another 50 years to to completely evolve on it but um it, it just seems to me that the the human species to take it to the next level we have to get rid of this sort of concept of scarcity i mean is that too big picture I, I, the question that it probably is for the scope of the conversation but having said that having said that why replicate that in the metaverse right you don't have right. to Right. Which is what, you know, to get to your real estate thing, Rob, why would you do that? Why would you limit the number of things that somebody can enjoy or experience? Why would you do that? Well, you can see what they're doing. It's your Marsh McGlynn thing. They're transposing an existing business model that everyone understands from the real world into a virtual environment. But but you're quite right. It's not a good transposition. Like It doesn't actually make economic sense to do it that way. But what you're driving at is interesting to me, and it kind of goes back to the point that Britt was making a minute ago. Um, you're really wanting to talk about relationships. You're less interested in the tech. Well, what we have in the digital world is, is digitally mediated relationships, for better or for worse. You know, like right now, you and I aren't sitting in a room talking. That'd be one thing. We're not doing that. We have Zoom going on. So we have Zoom in between us, but it connects us together, even though we're in different places. So that is, you know, it's kind of a win. We get a benefit there. Tell me a little bit about how digital technology has changed the way people relationships work uh, and maybe disrupted the, the traditional sense of relationships? So 
I think it's distilled it quite a bit. Um, I think while we've gained, we've gained some stuff and we've lost some stuff, right? The truth of the matter is I met my wife on the internet, right? I didn't meet her in a bar. I didn't meet her at a party. I didn't meet her in a club. I met, she lived literally across the country. And I, I met her in a virtual space, right? Playing a game. And you think about how common that is nowadays. You talk about people who have created relationships online who have never met each other in physical proximity that consider themselves very, very good friends. So in many ways, you know, you and I have never met in person, Rob. However, you and I have had a, what I consider to be an extraordinarily meaningful conversation that's been very, very um, beneficial to me. And I, I, you know, I think that that is really distilling the relationship down. It's not worrying about the physical presence. It's not worrying about our socioeconomic status. It's not worrying about whether I'm sitting in a, a small room or a large house. It's not worrying. Like, it doesn't matter where I am. And mm -hmm. so I think in many ways, it has equalized a great deal. Now, there are costs, right? There are costs and there are barriers. And, and, and we want to get to a point where everybody has equal access to such things, right? Where people have access to devices and access to internet and access to things that allow people to carry on these relationships and conversations and so on and so forth. Um, there's also been some downside to it, right? There's been, yeah. the, you know, obviously the level of harassment and toxicity, the idea of, of all of these things that physical proximity tends to inhibit you walking up to somebody and being horrible to them, right? Because- yeah. Yeah, You're people can say things online that they would never say to someone's face. Now, you could view that as a good thing and a bad thing. Let's right there. There is the ability for um, a teenager to explore who they are, the ability of people to understand the relationships they have, the ability for people to experience environments that are not theirs that could be oppressive or otherwise. Right. The ability to gain or, knowledge or liberating, depending. Yeah. Or liberating. Right? Exactly. And so there's, one of the things we found in online games is that people people love to experiment. They, you know, they they try, they try different genders, different identities. And that seems to be not everybody, but a pretty significant chunk of the people who are playing games. They want to explore different aspects of their personality. I think that's a cool thing. So it's liberating for some folks, for sure. Yeah. And I think that hey, that's guys, what we're talking about. I, I'm mindful of the fact that we, we're running out of time. We've got about five minutes left. Okay. Um, and, you know, what I normally like to do at this point of the conversation is is get a bit more, you know, sci-fi and a bit more futurist. And Glenn, I know you've read a ton of sci-fi, you know, mm -hmm. and even though you don't consider yourself a futurist, you've always been on this leading edge of technology. So I want to project out a little bit. Um, beyond, you know, beyond this conversation around the metaverse and, and look maybe 30, 40, 50 years in the future. Um, you know, uh, what is it that excites you about the future? What, what do you think, um, what do you see coming down the line that, that you, you sort of can't wait to see us develop as humans from a technology perspective that you think will be uh, um, hugely transformative? So I'll start with, um, I'd like to see much more accessibility um, just sort of in general. And I think that, that things are slowly moving in that direction. But when I talk about accessibility, I am talking about it sort of financially and, and all these other things, all the barriers there. But I'm also talking about physical accessibility. Um, one of the things that I've been hypothesizing lately um, is the ability for colorblind people to carry their 
settings, I'm going to call them settings for lack of a better phrase, across everything that they experience, right? So the idea that one of the things, I've got a number of friends who play a lot of video games with me and a couple of them are colorblind. And one of the things that drives them absolutely crazy is having to configure the game every single time they go to a new game, right? And everybody's colorblindness is different. Like that's, that's one of the things that, that I sort of learned over the last couple of years. And it's different in fairly meaningful, significant ways. But that's true of all disability and it's true of all accessibility issues. And so the ability of an individual to experience things to the level that they want to or, you know, or choose to do so, I think is, is super interesting and super exciting to me. Um, and I want to see a lot more of that. Um, another thing that is, is, um, is removing barriers, just linguistic, like all of this stuff may seem fairly trivial, but just linguistic software that allows people that speak different languages to communicate with each other in much more, much easier ways, much more meaningful ways. Um, there's, um, a bunch of stuff that has to do with, um, identity portability of identity and, and identity just sort of in general. And I know that this is, these are concepts rather than hard tech and whatever it is. But, um, you know, from a concept perspective, I, I love the idea of people being able to, to create relationships sort of around the world without, you know, without leaving their home if they can't or don't want to, or, or any of those other things. So I think those are kind of the, the, the big ones for me, identity, um, accessibility. What about the yeah. idea of creating a relationship with a personality that doesn't exist? Um, I'm a digital AI. human. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I've, I've made the prediction that in the next five years, you'll have a meaningful conversation with a person who does not exist. That is to say, you know, an artificially have. generated personality. What do you yeah. think of that idea in terms of the future of relationships? I think that, that it's inevitable. Um, I, I'm not going to get kind of nirvana that. for brands, right? Like for, for brands, that's what they're aiming for is to have some full-time right. digital, uh, personality working for them, hawking their wares. Well, no, that's not, that's not the, the, the end goal of a brand, but putting that aside, I think ultimately the, the vision is, um, ultimately the trusted advisor, the, the, the person that can provide, um, that can meet need states in a meaningful way. Like that's where I think the value of that really is, right? A doctor that really does know every single symptom and all this other stuff is way better at diagnostics, way better at yeah, diagnostics yeah, exactly. and all this other yeah. stuff. That would be better, right? Um, the same thing is true of auto mechanics or like pe- people that can evaluate scenarios and provide good advice is really law. Yeah, yeah. Tax. Like yeah, these are yeah. all things and and you know in the gaming industry I've been like hypothesizing that as NPCs that run alongside you and offer you advice as you're playing. Like wouldn't using, you know, natural language like a golf just caddy. Talk, ex- exactly. <laughs> like you have a golf yeah, caddy. Yeah. Why would you not have one in Tiger Woods golf? <laughs> Like, yeah, why would you not? Legends, Gaddy. <laughs> exactly. But well, or a virtual Navy SEAL when you're playing your first person shooter, right? Whatever that is, like just the idea of actually improving the experience by by tapping into all that knowledge in real time in natural mm-hmm. language to allow people to actually create. Like that's where I think the value is. Like you, I think you kind of 
skewed it in a little different direction. But going to Home Depot and asking how to fix a faucet, like you always yeah, go. To you the could have your that, your augmented reality glasses because home improvement expert there with you showing you which things to take and everything. Yeah, that could be really interesting. All these things are. I like, like that. A, like it's assisted, and so in that way, I think. I think it's inevitable, but I also think it's welcome. Like now, whether or not I'm going to have a deep, meaningful relationship with with an AI, like I'm still I'm still noodling on that. I I don't I'm not going to say no because people will do what people do. But um, you know, in terms of Brett and I are fans of Hatsukini Miku, and she's she's been married seventeen hundred times now to Japanese single Japanese men, so. Clearly, it you can have very much like her, right? Yeah, God <laughs> you can have a relationship with a virtual character. What, well, what does you know, alimony and palimony look like in that situation? Yeah. Well, you know, Miku is a seven billion dollar brand now, so um, so I, I think she's, she's making doing more fine. money than she's yes, making more money than, than her, her husband's. husbands. <laughs> Although on a distributed basis, yeah, uh, but uh, uh, it's but um, you know, I, I, obviously, I've been talking about Hatsune Miku for um, many years, um, but. Um, you know, we we th- there's um, an estimate that came out from Huawei a, a few weeks ago. I don't know if you guys saw, but I, I put in an article recently. I wrote there's going to be 75 billion virtual humans by 2030. That's their estimate. There are more than that many bots on the internet today committing ad yeah, yeah. fraud. So I find that to be too low by far. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. But digital digital humans is an interesting term, you know, and what rights will digital humans have? That's that's a topic for another show. And uh, Glenn, thank you for being on The Futurist this week. Um, how can people stay in touch with you and follow your uh, your musings on the future or game with you, um, you know, uh, in, in the virtual world? Justicar, um, J-U-S-T-I-C-A-R on, uh, on Twitter. And it's my gamer tag on Xbox. Um, or you can ping me at marketingtechnerd at gmail.com. Awesome. Well, it was uh, great to meet you. Great to meet you too, Rob. Thank you very much for all the thinking. Well, that's it for another week of The Futurists. Uh, if you like the show, don't forget to give us a five-star review. Uh, give us a shout-out on social media or in the metaverse, I guess. We're not in the metaverse yet, Rob. we got to fix that. We got to have the future presence in the metaverse. Well, we could be, yeah. Um, but uh, make sure, yeah, leave us a review, give us some comments, give us some feedback. That's how people get to know about the show. Um, you know, please follow us on Twitter if you're on that platform, and uh, likewise on Facebook and LinkedIn, where it's the Futurist Network. Um, but uh, my thanks to Kevin Hersham, who has helped us in the audio chair this week, Elizabeth Severins, uh, Sylvia and Carlo on the social media side, and to my co host, Rob, obviously. We will be back with you next week, but until then, we will see you in the future. In the future. Well, that's it for the futurists this week. If you like the show, we sure hope you did. Please subscribe and share it with the people in your community. And don't forget to leave us a five-star review that really helps other people find the show. And you can ping us anytime on Instagram and Twitter at, at Futurist Podcast for the folks that you'd like to see on the show or the questions that you'd like us to ask. Thanks for joining. And as always, we'll see you in the future.